Thanks, Robert. All right. Well, it's good to see you tonight, and um, let's open our Bibles just to begin with to Galatians 1. As you're finding that, let me just introduce what we're going to be doing for the next four weeks. Robert and I are going to be tag-teaming a, uh, a series on healthy church and what is a healthy church and how we should think about the components of a healthy church. And um, this is something that uh, I'm passionate about. I'm really glad you're here because this is not necessarily one of those topics that necessarily grabs people's attention. Um, it's more like, it's, it's, it's less filet mignon and more vegetables. But vegetables, at least from what my mom used to tell me, apparently are good for you. And so hopefully these next four weeks will be good for you. We're going to look at components, marks, characteristics of a healthy church. Now, you've heard me mention this name before several times, this name of a ministry and a, a church up in Washington, D.C., Capitol Hill Baptist Church. Uh, and Nine Marks Ministries has been incredibly influential on me personally and by extension on the staff. And a book was written 20, 25 years ago by the pastor of that church called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. Not the nine marks, as if these were the only, but just nine things that he saw lacking in the churches that he was associated with at the time. And it's become a very influential book on people kind of in our theological stream. And what we're gonna be presenting over these next four weeks is a consolidation of those themes from that book. And I will tell you this, that this, uh, we planted Crosspoint 13 years ago, and I would say, other than just clearly just God's grace and um, his sovereign will, that any sort of fruit or health or, or just grace that God has given Crosspoint, I, I would directly attribute to these, I think, biblical concepts. And so I'm, I'm, I'm really eager, I think a lot of you are probably familiar with them, but I'm very eager for you to, to get a better understanding of them because I think, I think they're very healthy. But I also don't want you to think of them merely as kind of um, esoteric or distant concepts that are kind of for like a lecture or academic setting. I think that as we go through this, it will help you understand the Bible better, and it will give you a, a good instinct for what I think the most important organism, organization on the face of the earth, a local church, should be about. And so that's where I want to begin in this text, in Galatians chapter 1. And I'll, I'm going to read Galatians chapter 1, a few verses out of it, and I'm going to tell you why I chose this text as just kind of a, an orienting text for us before we get into um, these first two aspects that I want to look at tonight, expositional preaching and biblical theology. Um, actually, before I do that, let me do this. Let me hand out a couple books. Here's a book by Mark Dever, What is a Healthy Church? Does anybody want this? Anybody, anybody care about healthy churches? Robert, um, Zach attacks O'Shea back there with a bunch of friends, I'm assuming, from maybe University of Georgia or someplace like that, or crew? Fort Benning, Fort Benning or Fort Benning. Okay. I've, all right. Local military people. I, all right. I, I I used to do that. All right, what is it? And I got another one. Anybody want another copy of this? What is a healthy church? Anybody? Daniel back there. Uh, uh, two books, two of them, expositional preaching. We're going to talk about that. Anybody? D Devon, come get this. And Henry, you, do you want that, Henry? Okay, all right. All right, I'm going to zing it to you. There you go. All right. And then we got biblical theology. This will really help you understand the Bible better. Drew, that's you. Anybody else want one on biblical? I'm not going to throw a book at Kathy, but you can hand it to her, Robert. All right. Let me read Galatians chapter 1. Galatians is interesting. Paul spends most of his 
time in other letters in the opening kind of being sweet to those whom he's writing to. In Galatians, he's not. He gets right to it. He's, he's very, he's upset because they've wandered off into theological air, and he gets right to it, and he kind of busts their chops. So in Galatians 1, verse 1, he says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave him, verse 4 is a summary of the whole gospel, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God our Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, verse 6, he said hello, he's given us the gospel, and now he's He's going right after it. I am astonished. And he's writing, this is important, he's writing not merely to the leaders of the church in Galatia. He's writing to the whole church body. He's writing to every Christian there. This was meant to be a letter read to all the Christians. And he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even, listen to verse 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I, now say, so, I, so I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed, or you should call him an anathema, a curse. And so he's telling the church that you, collectively Christians, need to have discernment so that if you hear something that does not align with the truth of God's word, that you collectively should... should reject that teaching and call it accursed. So my goal is through these four weeks is to help us all become kind of like spiritual German shepherds, that we would have good, a good sense of smell for what a church should look like, not so that we would be more critical of the local church. I hopefully, hopefully that's not what ends up, but that we would be more gracious. We would be uh, we would be more passionate about the church's health. And for many of you mil military people, that as you move from post to post, that you would just have a, a, a good instinct for what, for, for what a local church should be about. So with that, the first sort of mark of a healthy church that, that we're going to look at tonight, again, these are not the marks, just a mark, just some things that we think are important and that this, this ministry that we're very aligned with thinks is important is, is expositional preaching and then secondly, biblical theology. So first, expositional preaching. What is expositional preaching? Hopefully you got an outline. Did you guys get that? Did everybody get that when they came in? Okay, good. If you didn't, they're on the back there. What is expositional preaching? A definition. You've heard of the word preaching, but maybe you haven't heard of the word expositional. What does that mean? Expositional preaching is preaching that is concerned with making the point of the passage that you're looking at the point of the sermon. So it's concerned with the content. It's making the point of the message the point of the passage that we're looking at. It's not, and you might contrast it, this might kind of help you, expositional preaching is contrasted with topical preaching which I think has its place. I'm not saying that this is necessarily always wrong, 
But what I want to argue for tonight, and I think as a, as a mark of a healthy church, is that the majority of the preaching in a, in a local church should be expositional in nature as opposed to topical in nature, meaning that what is guiding the preaching and teaching of the Word of God in the local church is not random topics or hobby horses or pet peeves of the pastor or teacher, but the Word of God. And so what does this word expositional preaching mean? This phrase, it means that the point of the the sermon is the point of the passage. It's looking to determine the meaning of the text that you're working through and delivering that main point to God's people and then applying, and this is a, this is a very important point, not just explaining what the Bible says and means, but then attempting to apply what the Bible says to the lives and the context and the situation of the people that you're, you're speaking to. So Charles Simeon who's one of my favorite historical pastors. He pastored in England in the late 1700s and early 1800s. Um, I have a picture of him in my office. And one of the reasons I love Charles Simeon, he was, a, he was he's kind of well-known in church history as a, just a faithful, um, clear expositor of God's word in the face of much opposition, even from his own church. As a young man, he was installed, and they had kind of a a bishop sort of system and sort of an Episcopalian sort of system of church government. And he was installed by the Church of England in his church. And so they would install the pastor, but the congregation itself had a lot of control over who actually preached. So people from outside kind of put the pastor in, but the congregation still had a lot of control over who preached. And they would have these little, like little levers where you could, like each pew was locked and to get into the pew, you would have to, in England back at that time, you'd have to lift up this lever to kind of go in, sort of like a, like a gate to the pew. And apparently the congregation or deacons in the congregation had all the keys and they, they, didn't, they didn't unlock them to like, to, to like visitors because they didn't want them to come. And so this was kind of the, the mentality of the church. And, and they wouldn't let Simeon, even though he was installed as the pastor, they wouldn't let him preach on Sunday mornings for like a year. And they would have him preach Sunday nights, and they would just have somebody else preach. But yet he just kept faithfully preaching the word, and eventually, over the course of several decades, transformed that congregation. He says this, My endeavor is to bring out of Scripture what is there, and not to thrust in what I think might be there. I have a great jealousy on this head, never to speak more or less than I believe to be the mind of the Spirit in the passage I am expounding. That's a great quote, and I think that's really the heart of what expositional preaching is. David Helm, who wrote that little yellow book that that Henry and Devon got, Expositional Preaching, he's a modern-day pastor in the city of Chicago, He says that expositional preaching is empowered preaching that rightly submits the shape and emphasis of the sermon to the shape and emphasis of the biblical text. In that way, it brings out out of the text what the Holy Spirit puts there. And as Simeon, he's quoting, he's relying on Simeon, who we just read, as Simeon put it, and does not put into the text what the preacher thinks might be there. Okay, that's really, really important. And just this word expositional, just think about this word. It means to expose the Bible to the hearts of the people. 
So that's what expositional preaching is. It's a good definition of it, I think. What, what, what is it not? Let's just think about that. It's not merely a running commentary on a, a biblical passage. So some of you might think of kind of uh, this type of preaching. Uh, well, most of you here are part of Crosspoint, and so you, you've, you've been sufficiently exposed to this type of preaching. But maybe some of us might have some, some preconceived notions or stereotypes. It's not just a boring, dry running commentary on a biblical passage. It's not merely a kind of commentary regurgitation of what this text means, but it's seeking to apply the text to the person and to the hearts and minds of the congregation. It's not also just tied to a certain personality or or a certain style. Some people think of expositional preaching as being boring or monotone. And if a preacher that preaches expositionally is boring and monotone, it's because he is boring and monotone, not because expositional preaching necessarily has to be boring and monotone. Do you get that? Right? So, I mean, you know, you brought that to the table, homeboy, not the Bible. Okay? It doesn't even necessarily need to be verse by verse. Sometimes you'll hear people kind of sort of, you know, kind of pridefully say, we preach the Bible verse by verse. Well, that, that can be a very good way to do it, but it, that's not necessary. I think expositional preaching has a, a, a wider swath of what it can be. So, for example, um, Jesus, I think, uh, in the end of Luke, when he is on the road to Emmaus and he opens up the scripture, starting with Moses and all the way through the law and the prophets, gives, I think, a wonderful expositional model of preaching and teaching the word of God to these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he didn't do it verse by verse. Um, it, it's, it's, so it's not necessarily a particular portion of Scripture. There's different ways uh, of doing it. I think there's a, a lot of liberty there, but it, it is explaining. So th- I think there are times when it's best to, to take wide swaths of Scripture, maybe like large Old Testament narr- narratives. I mean, then there are times, like maybe say Paul's epistles, when it's, when it's better to slow down and, and go a little bit more slower. But again, those things can depend. And it's also not unevangelistic. Some people think of, evangel- of, of expositional preaching as sort of more for seasoned Christians or more academic or more theological. Uh, again, I, I think, and we're going to talk about this in a second, that when done rightly, expositional preaching is the type of preaching that should be able to bless somebody who is a mature Christian, who's been a Christian for 40 years and can meet them where they are, but it's also able to bring the gospel to bear on a person who's never heard it and explain it in a way that can be very evangelistic. Expositional preaching is not at odds with calling people to faith and repentance in Jesus. In fact, at the very core of expositional preaching is the gospel. And so um, expositional preaching is certainly not unevangelistic. And, and then just finally, the last little point here, why preach expositionally? Well, I think most fundamentally because God's people need to hear from God not from the whims and the personality type or the uh, hobby horses of the preacher. And every human being, no matter how gifted, no matter how pure-hearted they are, no matter how humble they are, are all weak and frail. And all of your, every preacher you've ever sat under or will sit under and are currently listening to is weak and frail and has limited opinions and wisdom and discernment, but God's word is true and completely inspired and inerrant and 
authoritative. God has always called and created through his word. Um, a, a beautiful text from Paul, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 through 17, he says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So you see, what, see Paul's view of ministry? He's saying that, look, we, we need to be as clear about who Christ is and be an aroma of Christ, and then God's going to use that However, he uses that in his sovereign will for those that are perishing and those that are being brought to life. But we're not to be peddlers of God's word for our own purposes, whether it be kind of the American church growth movement. You know, I mean, it's just like every time some major movie comes out, you see a billboard of some pastor or some church trying to hijack that cultural phenomenon to make a catchy sermon thing. Friends, it makes me want to stick a fork in my eye because it is... It's like it's trying to be culturally cool and relevant. And what it does is not that God can't use those, doesn't use those churches and make them fruitful in some way. Of course he does. He uses, he uses all of us in our limitations. But you see, subtly over time, it, that can create a sort of lack of dependence on the sufficiency of God's word. Now, I think a lot of those people in a lot of those churches are probably, they probably grew up in a church that was boring and dry and monotone and didn't have, had the life of a jellyfish. And so they're overreacting and they're trying to be cool and hip. Listen to what William Still says, a Scottish pastor back in the 19, mid-1900s, the work of the pastor is this little book, it's gold. And he said, there is no greater or better way to make an impact than by sounding forth the word of God and by the way, this doesn't just apply to the preaching pastor on a Sunday morning. This applies to anybody that teaches the Bible or just in one-on-one -on -one discipleship relationship shares the Bible. Think of this in that context for you because I realize that you may think, oh, well, this is just about what the preachers do. Now think about this in the life of an everyday Christian. There is no greater, even if you're not a preacher, you are a sharer of God's word. There is no greater or better way to make an impact than by sounding forth the word of God and by bringing people under its life-changing and character-transforming power. The reverberations of such a ministry extend further and further, and the ramifications of its influence spread farther abroad than we ever dreamt of, and all without thought on our part or attempt at publicity self-aggrandizement, or self-justification. Do get my point, which is that if the hope of the world is Christ, it is Christ in all the scriptures, and that hope can only be fulfilled by men pouring out the riches of Christ's saving grace upon the Lord's people through the scriptures, or brothers and sisters sharing it, you know, in their, in their relationships. Um, that, that, that is, that is that's, that's why we should preach expositionally. And then what does expositional preaching include? Generally, I think it, pre it includes preaching through books of the Bible, and that's primarily what we do here probably 80% of the time. Most typically, expositional preaching works through books of the Bible or large portions of the Bible week after week. Now, in contrast, 
contrast this to topical preaching, which I think has its place. I'm not saying that there is no place for that in the church, but what I'm arguing for is that this type of preaching should be the majority of preaching in the local church. Topical sermon series can be done in an expositional way, but a steady diet of it has inherent weaknesses. Here's an example. You might do a sermon series on praying, on just prayer. And so you might look at you know, Mark 10 and blind Bartimaeus and say praying with faith and where he says, you know, Lord, I want to see you. And Jesus says, your faith has made you well. And then the next week you might do a, a, a sermon, a topical sermon on praying with right motives from James 4, how you should, for, you know, you should ask with, with right intentions and not from your sinful passions. And that would, could be a very good and effective sermon. And you might then the next week do a sermon on praying with boldness from Hebrews chapter 4, where it says, draw near to the throne of God with grace and confidence. And much fruit and much truth can be done. And those can, that can be a wonderfully helpful way of approaching a particular topic at times. But a steady diet of that what it will end up doing is as you preach through those passages, we, we train people to look at the Bible in a kind, of, a kind of self-centered, unintentional sort of way. You may preach through those passages and actually say a lot of good and helpful things, which I hope we do every time we talk about a topic, but the starting point, listen to this, this is important, the starting point of that type of sermon or that type of preaching or teaching is not what's the point of the text, it's what does this verse have to say about this topic. And, and, and a steady diet of that sort of topical focused thing can make the, listen to me, it can make the Bible unwittingly into a kind of personal toolkit for your own spiritual development. And that's not what the Bible is. That's really, really, really important. Do you get, do you get that? I, just, I, I want you, that's where you got to be a German shepherd. And you gotta, so, so there, now listen, listen, I'm going to say something and some of y'all are going to faint. My favorite preacher in the history of the church, other than the biblical ones, everybody say his name with me, Charles Spurgeon. He preached this way. He did not preach expositionally. He pulled rabbits out of his hat on Saturday night. But he was just particularly anointed with the Holy Spirit, and he kind of made it work. Um, but someday I'm going to see Chuck in heaven, I'm going to say, bro, bro, like, what? You were all over the map, dog. And then he's going to sit me down and say, shut your mouth. I'm Charles Spurgeon, and you're, you're just a scrub. But unwittingly, you can teach people to not see the overarching, see how the Bible fits together, right? And so um, we're going to talk about that in just a second when we get to biblical theology. Um, so then preaching through the whole Bible, it gives people a sense of the whole canon of Scripture, um, preaching through both Testaments, various genres, um, varying levels. We're not just, just preaching Paul's letters, preaching Gospels, preaching Old Testament texts. Um, people that just sort of preach, exposi- uh, preach just like propositional short New Testament letters it's like you know, eating meat and not your vegetables. So you have to look at how the Old Testament connects with the New, and we'll talk about that in a second. And then, of course, expositional preaching includes preaching the gospel. In fact, that's where it centers. Uh, the gospel is not to be forced on or merely to be a kind of mismatched appendage sewn onto the end of a sermon. 
Um, I, I, I sometimes will see like notable uh, TV preachers, and they will preach a very kind of man-centered, topical sermon about leadership or overcoming this or that. And then at the end of that sermon, which had nothing to do with how Christ answers the dilemma of the fallen sinful soul, it's just some sort of self-help sermon, they will tag the gospel on as a kind of skin tag or appendage on the end of the sermon. And they will say, any of you that want to accept Jesus as your Savior, raise your hand and repeat this prayer after me. And of course, everybody thinks, well, that's what you do after this helpful, practical message. And I, I think it's a really bad way to preach the gospel. And I think it, I think, I think it helps to produce people who aren't truly converts, but who just think that that's what you're supposed to do after a helpful message. Um, I, th I think that's pretty prevalent, uh, unfortunately. But no, the center of expositional preaching is not just explaining the text, but it is explaining how this text leads us to realize our need for Christ, the real issue, the problem of the human soul, which is sin, and the answer for every problem, which is the redemption that is found only in Christ. Um, so Sp Charles Spurgeon, let's give him some credit since I criticized Charles Spurgeon just a second ago. He said, I don't have this quote on the screen, but it's, it's a wonderful one. He says, from every town, village, and little hamlet in England, wherever it may be, there is a road to London. And so from every text in scripture, there is a road to the metropolis of the scriptures that is Christ. Your business is, when you get to a text, to say, now what is the road to Christ? And then preach a sermon running along the road towards the great metropolis, Christ. That doesn't mean to say that we have some sort of strange typology where every little nook and cranny in the Old Testament, we say, oh, well, there's Jesus in that text. That, that can be forcing it in. Maybe the Old Testament passage is about one of the patriarch's daughters getting raped and her brothers taking revenge and then circumcising a whole village and killing them that night while they were sore. And you're like, well, where's, G where's Jesus in that? I think where Jesus in that is that's just a picture of the utter despair and depravity of humanity. And that's kind of where we are. And so we need Christ. And thank God that, that the whole story of Scripture points us to Christ. Um, so, so, yeah. Um, and then finally, preaching, uh, expositional preaching preaches the whole storyline of the Bible, which now gets us to biblical theology. So I'm going to run through this here in about 10 or 15 minutes, and then we'll take just five minutes to answer any questions that you may have or any comments. So expositional preaching, um, I want to I I say this, expositional preaching leads to, it's a, it's a particular type of preaching, which is Again, looking at the point of the passage is the point of the text, and generally it's through books of the Bible, but it leads to a particular content, and that content is, is good doctrine or biblical theology. Now, you might say, well, well, of course, all theology should be biblical, but, but we mean a little something different when we say biblical theology. Of course, all theology should be biblical, but, but what we're saying here is, is a little bit more nuanced. Here's the definition of biblical theology. I don't think I have this on the screen, but let me read it for you. Michael Lawrence, a pastor in Portland, Oregon, writes, Biblical theology is the attempt to tell the whole story of the Bible as Christian scripture. It is a story, therefore, that has an authoritative and normative, normative claim on our lives. It's a story because God's, because it's the story of, it, it, because it's the story of God's glory and salvation through judgment. 
Another, I think maybe more helpful, I should have just read this one and skipped that one, not because Michael Lawrence didn't have good things to say there, but because I kind of butchered it when I was reading it. Andy Nassali says this, biblical theology displays how the whole Bible progresses, integrates, and climaxes in Christ. So biblical theology, so expositional preaching, when done well, is the type of preaching that presents, connects, so if we're in Romans chapter 9, it's the type of preaching that can take themes and, and aspects of, of truth in Romans chapter 9 and can display how it fits into the whole Bible, how it's part of God's unified plan, how it progresses, how it integrates, and how it climaxes in Christ. It is, maybe to contrast biblical theology with something that it's not, it's the opposite of moralistic preaching. Do you, do you see that? Moralistic preaching is looking at a text and sort of pulling that text out and saying, this text will tell you things you should do and shouldn't do, so be good, Johnny, don't be bad, Susie, and do this. No, biblical preaching certainly is going to have do's and don'ts, but it's going to connect the Bible as one unified story that is integrated together, that's progressive. It's God unfolding his plan and integrating and climaxing on, on Christ. So that, that's, I think, a good definition of what biblical theology is. Let me just skip that next one, contrast with systematic theology. Let me just do this real quick. Systematic theology, because we make a, lot of, we make a big deal about Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, which we sell in the resource room, which I think is a really helpful resource. Systematic theology is looking at the Bible... And it's looking at what the Bible says about various topics in life, like what the Bible says about, you know, uh, the work of Christ, or what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit, or what the Bible says about the end times, or even what the Bible says about, you know, angels, or what the Bible says about, you know, big topics or small topics. Looking at how the whole Bible is unified in what it says about particular topics, like, you know, the atonement, or the Holy Spirit, or the nature of God, or mankind, or sin. Biblical theology, in contrast to systematic theology, is looking at how the whole Bible fits together, how Genesis points to Revelation, how Leviticus connects to the sacrificial system, the picture that we see in Leviticus points to the work of Christ in the New Testament. It's looking at the Bible as a kind of story. Okay, let's keep going. Assumptions about biblical theology. Let me run through these quickly about the nature of the Bible. First, clearly that the Bible is the inspired word of God. So we think that the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is one unified story that has been orchestrated by God. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's got, God is going somewhere. And God has determined that the books that we have in the Bible are exactly what he intends for us to have. So then, and this happens every Easter, when the Discovery Channel comes out with, da-na-na, we found a fifth gospel. It's the gospel of Thomas or the gospel of Peter. And it's, it's, so it's kind of throwing all sorts of doubt on whether or not we have exactly what God intends us to have as the Bible, casting and causing Christians to run off and go by the Da Vinci Code and look for all these strange, oh my gosh, what's going on? Friends, if God is powerful enough to create everything out of nothing, and he's powerful enough 
to make his son a man and make him come back from the dead, don't you think he's powerful enough to work through the early church to gather and collate exactly what he intends for us to have as the Bible? It's not like the Trinity is up there wringing their hands. If they would just find that fifth gospel in that obscure cave in the Middle East, then we can, we can make it all fit together. That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I mean, that, okay, okay. So the Bible is coherent. It's not only inspired, but it's coherent. It has one divine author. He never contradicts himself. Again, these are assumptions of biblical theology. So there are some verses in the Bible, there are some Areas of the Bible that seem to be at odds with each other on the surface. But if you come, if you understand how the Bible works, you come to it, you realize, okay, that can't, if this is true, then I've got to interpret this verse in light of that verse. And that's just a great way to think about handling difficult text. Interpret the Bible in light of the Bible, not in, line, in light of necessarily presuppositions or, or, or prejudices that we bring to the Bible. The Bible's a one coherent message. It's progressive. God did not give us all the Bible at once. It's not a revelation of principles, but it's a revelation of redemption. It's written over centuries by multiple human authors and genres. So that's why you can't go to the Old Testament and look at some narrative story of how God is dealing with Israel in one particular point in time and extrapolate that as necessarily how God is going to deal with his people in the New Covenant. There's nuances to that. And you have to learn how to read the Bible as a progressive document. It doesn't mean that the Bible is wrong or weak or that God. No, it means that the Bible is written not like a kind of toy box that you reach into and get an answer for every kind of cultural answer that just is like a fortune cookie. And the people that have a doubt the Bible often treat the Bible like a fortune cookie box when it's a progressive revelation of God's dealing with mankind, Israel, ultimately the church, and, and all the cosmos. This, just that point there has a huge influence on how we engage and interpret the Bible. Um, okay, and the Bible is historical. It's not, uh, it's not fables. It's objective events. By this we mean that the Bible contains actual history, and we, we certainly believe that when we approach of biblical theology. The Bible is also organic. This is to say that the Bible is not like a blueprint. It's not like architectural plans for a building. It unfolds. Think of the Bible not as necessarily a roadmap or an architectural plan, but think of it as a seed that grows into a full-blown tree. Therefore, the Bible is not contained in neat little boxes. It just it doesn't, doesn't work that way. And one of the weaknesses of the American church is that we like things very compartmentalized and digestible because we're very industrious people and we're very organized people. And so what that has done is it has pushed sort of the, the Christian writer, writing and Christian publishing industry to present dige and digest Bible studies and books about the spiritual life, the Christian life, in a very sort of boxed, compartmentalized sort of way, which can be full of lots of good truth. I'm not dogging that. I'm just saying, be aware that at times the Bible is not, in fact, more often than, in fact, all the time, the Bible 
is an organic, unpredictable, uncontainable, something that we can't sort of put in neat little boxes. And listen, you guys know that I adhere to a particular theological system and lens. I believe that a reformed view of the Bible is, is the best way of looking at the Bible. But even that, you can't, it's got, it's, you, you got to draw those lines with dashes, not like in, you know, magic marker. And you got to have generosity for realizing that sometimes things don't fit in all of our boxes. And sometimes the stuff that they sell at Lifeway is well-intended, but it's just too tidy and neat. Amen? Okay, I'm making some people mad. And the, ultimately, the Bible is practical. Um, I, I don't want you to think, and, and, and this is, I think, hopefully I'm not doing this. Maybe I am, and if I am, I'm, I apologize. I'm, I'm going a little fast here because I want us to end on time. Uh, I don't want you to sort of be intimidated by this and think, oh, I got, thanks, Brad. I, I, now I got to think about all these things. And it's not heady stuff. It's not, it's not highbrow academic things. It's, it's, I think it's, it's, it's just good instincts of how, of what, of what the Bible is, is about. It's, it's, it, the Bible is for the, it's written for the people of God, for the church. Um, you know, ironically enough, uh, one of the great stories of American Christianity is the resurgence and the rescuing of the Southern Baptist Convention from its demise and slip into and almost being lost to liberal theology. And here's the really unique thing about that, is that all of, most of the great American denominations are very centrally governed. In other words, they're governed by trained academics, professors, and pastors kind of a, a, an Episcopalian sort of government. The Southern Baptist Convention is congregationally led and is really led by just members, ultimately by members in the church. And all of these great American denominations, many of them have slipped into liberalism as they've been led by academics. Well, the Southern Baptist Convention was going that way in the late 70s and 80s and, and, and late 80s, and it was rescued because of the common sense understanding of the Bible of the average person in the pew who rose up and said, no, these things aren't right, and sent messengers to the Southern Baptist Convention and voted in people who were conservative leaders and rescued a denomination that was slipping into liberalism. And that's never happened before. And it happened because of just blue-collar, grassroots people in churches of 75 to 100 people. And so don't think that this is heady stuff. This is just good instincts with, 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 uh, with, with an understanding of, uh, with a, a view of how to look at the Bible. And let's skip, see there, two horizons of biblical theology. Um, and let's go straight to, to D, what, what ultimately is biblical theology. It's understanding that the Bible is one unified story. And I think a good way to look at that one unified story is to look at just four words there, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. So we see this kind of thing that is happening in the Bible. God creates a people. And we see creation and fall kind of happen very early on in the Bible. God creates everything. He creates mankind. And then much of the New Testament is an exposition. It's an explanation of the consequences of the fall on humanity. But even after creation and the fall, and already we're just at, just 
three chapters into the Bible, we see God beginning redemption. And you can think of redemption in a couple ways. Redemption is promised in the Old Testament, and then redemption is accomplished by Jesus in the Gospels, and then redemption is applied and explained in the New Testament letters. And so the bulk of the Bible is this story of Christ, how, how Christ is promised, how redemption is promised. So even Abraham, in the early chapters of Genesis, is the seed, it's the shadow of the promise that is coming. There's coming, even in the fall in, in, in the garden, Eve and Adam are promised a seed that will come and crush the serpent's head. Who, who's that a promise of? Well, as we continue to read the Bible, we have this in the back of our minds that redemption has been promised and redemption is coming. So we read the whole Old Testament in light of that seed that is coming. We read Abraham and his seed in the light of the seed that is coming. We read the prophets, not just merely what they say to Israel at the time or how it applies to me personally, but to the seed that is coming, to the promised Messiah, warrior that is coming. And then we see Christ and then we see Christ accomplish this redemption. And then Paul and and the other uh, New Testament writers explain this redemption. And then at the end of the Bible, we see the consummation of this redemption when Jesus comes again. And when we have that view of the Bible, when we see it, what we can do is it doesn't mean that we plop ourselves down in Jeremiah and all of a sudden instantly understand it all. But we can at least locate and kind of have a sense of, okay, this is what's going on here. These are, this is a prophet of God sent to God's rebellious people who, and he is promising them redemption. He's telling them they will be judged if they don't repent, and he's promising them redemption. Well, what is that pointing to? It's pointing to Christ. And so everything that we read in the Bible it falls under this kind of one unified story that biblical theology is intending to give us a picture of, and that avoids the sort of, um, you know, the, 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 the fortune cookie um, approach to the Bible. Where, where we just kind of play sort of Bible roulette and pick out a verse. And God, you know, well, this is a good verse for the day. We want to read through books of the Bible and get an overall sense of God's unified story, which is the story of redemption in Christ. Questions for five minutes. Frank. Somebody get Frank a, somebody get Frank a mic. I don't expect a specific answer, more of a general answer. And as you were talking about before, we're not going to do much preaching. Let's say we're doing mentoring, we're doing yeah. discipleship, that kind of thing. Can you give me some idea of when we should be expositional, when we should be topical, maybe yeah. a ratio, how it pro would progress, that kind of thing? That's a great question. Um, yeah, I think, I think there's just a lot of value in when you're do, in a discipleship relation. I think there's a lot of great resources out there. I'm not dogging resources. But I think there's a lot, like how this might apply in a discipling relationship, is I think there's just a lot of value in an older Christian sitting down with a younger Christian and reading through a book of the Bible and then just pausing along the way and say, how does this apply? What's, what's, what's Paul saying here? What's the gospel writer saying here? And how does this apply to all of life? And so I think that's a kind of expositional look at the scriptures. But man, I don't want to be dogmatic about that. That's not to say that there aren't times for marriage studies or, you know, all sorts of things. But I think, the, the, I think one of the lost arts of Christian community is just reading God's word together. Um, 
and I, 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 so I think that's a kind of expositional application. And then just, you know, a wise Christian is, is just not going to be perfect. Nobody's perfect in this, but it's just going to help a younger Christian see how the Bible applies to their life. And I, I think that has tremendous benefit. Um, that'd be my, my response. That's a great question. I thought about that a lot as I was thinking about Because I don't want you to think just about preaching. I want you to think about the Christian life. Thanks, Frank. Yeah, Stephen. Somebody get Stephen a mic. No, you can, but... Yeah, so uh, you talked about typologies in the Old Testament not always being helpful. How would you recommend us sift out and discern whether a typology is accurate and biblical, like you were talking about Moses being, you know, kind of the seed or uh, Adam and Eve looking forward to Christ, versus maybe something that wouldn't be helpful as a typology in the Old Testament, like the first one that comes to mind is Mary as the Ark of the Covenant, yeah. New Testament type thing. Yeah, yeah. So like, aside from just Roman Catholic doctrine, yep. what, what would jump out at you as kind of signs or ways to discern whether or not it's good? That's a good question. I would say I would probably, um, I, I think that's best discovered in community. Like, you know, I, I think that's just, there's going to be some gray area there where just you, you're going to need people around you that are like, hey man, you're pressing that a little bit. Like that little twig in Deuteronomy 7 is not necessarily a picture of Christ. You know, maybe it's just a twig. Um, And so I think, um, you know, I would want to rely on just sort of people that have good instincts that have gone before me. You know, if I'm seeing things in Scripture that nobody else has, that's probably an indicator that it's not there. Um, But I want to be gracious too. Like God, like that's another area where Spurgeon, like you read Spurgeon's Morning and Evening, which is gold. His little devotion, it's gold. But Spurgeon's, would you agree with me? He presses, he presses some typology there, and you're like, ah, Chuck, I don't know. I mean, what you said was awesome, but I don't know if that's really what that text means, but okay. I mean, you know, so, so let's give each other some grace there. Um, I, I just think that sometimes, I, I, think, I just think we need to be careful about looking for Christ behind every nook and cranny in the Old Testament. And sometimes the point of the text is just human wickedness. And sometimes the point of the text is a moral lesson. But the moral lesson we can only really, we we see as we read the rest of the Bible, that we can only be righteous because of an imputed righteousness that comes to us outside of ourselves. So that's a good question, Stephen. Anybody else got any questions? Man, I've been criticizing Spurgeon all night long. Devon. So I was talking to one of my old friends from college today, and um, he, uh, so when I, let me start over. When I look at somebody's life, as far as if I'm trying to discern if this person's a Christian or not, I always yeah. go to Luke 18, the tax collector and the Pharisee. Yeah. Tax collector beats on his chest, gets on his yeah. knees, says, Lord, be yeah. forgiven to me, a sinner. Jesus said he goes, I'm justified. But, and my friend, he definitely emulates that, mm-hmm. but... In this specific case, he doesn't believe in a physical resurrection. He mm-hmm. believes in like a spiritual resurrection, mm-hmm. which I really don't feel like explaining. Yeah. But is there like a baseline of biblical theology? Like yeah. if, if somebody like, seems to be repentant, understanding who they are and who God is, mm-hmm. but they have like a distorted view of the Trinity, for instance, mm-hmm. that's are a, you allowed to question? That's a really good question, Devon. And I would say that question sort of creeps into systematic theology a little bit. So I do think that there are some essentials 
of historic Christianity. I think a biblical understanding of God is triune. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then let's whittle that down a little bit further. Uh, The nature of Christ. He's fully God and fully man because that's the heir of the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons. And I think that they, they almost believe the gospel, but the almost that they believe won't save you because they don't believe in the divinity, the full divinity of Jesus. Um, the, I think you need to have a biblical understanding of mankind as fallen and not merely, you know, neutral. Um, and I think you need to have a biblical understanding of the gospel as exclusive, meaning Jesus is the only way. Um, those things, the nature of God, the nature of man, the nature of Christ, um, I think those are essentials. I would, I would be tempted to add in there the nature of the Bible as well, but I, I don't want to say that a, a, a kind of a firm grasp on inerrancy is necessary for salvation. I, so I, kind of those would be baseline things, but again, even there, we're going to draw with, we're going to draw with dashes, you know, I think, I think understanding the bodily resurrection of Christ is essential because that's exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. So that, that's, I think that's essential, and I think I'd go to that text. Um, but uh, we also, I think, need to realize that, that, that spiritual birth is oftentimes a process. And so, you know, I, I want to I kind of be a midwife of somebody's biblical understanding of, of the essentials. Paul, you had your hand up, and then we'll go to Frank. But something like, something like the resurrection of Jesus, I mean, that's just, that's like, there's a, there's a text for that. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I, well, I'd say that they're... Well, similar to like maybe a Catholic person, there's people that are, there's regenerate people in the Catholic. If you believe the, what, what the dogma of the Catholic Church, that's not a saving body of, that's not a, but, if, but there are many people, I'm sure, that truly are trusting in Christ alone and they're just sort of in that. Yeah, so I, I think you're, I, I mean, I understand what you're saying and I, I think I agree with it. I yeah, was just going to, yeah, kind of tagging on Devon and Frank, I think a little bit is, would you say maybe that some of the, the distilling of certain theological issues, whether it's the Trinity um, or a full grasp of sort of uh, the nature of man, um, that perhaps those are kind of sanctification issues. In other yeah. words, yes, you will not be a Christian and continue to be in air on those issues, but you may be a Christian and start in air on those Ab- issues. That's a great way to put it. That's a great way to put it. And I would also say that you may be truly a Christian and just kind of be ignorant. To, of those things, even for the rest of your life, even to the point of I've your just kind of thought always that, like, if you, have a, if you have somebody who has a faulty view of the Trinity. Yeah. Okay. But if, if you can be demonstrated biblically a, a true view of, of the nature of God, and you still go, nah, yeah. I, I don't like that, then that would be sort of evidence that maybe you're not truly regenerate. Yeah. Um, but, but being exposed to some sort of proper biblical theology where you go, oh, yeah, yeah, that, that actually, that, yeah, I'm submitting myself yeah. to the authority of Scripture uh, on this issue. And so, so the, the, the sort of distilling of those topics is more of a sanctification issue as opposed to a, a necessity for justification. I, I think that's a really helpful way to put it. 
And I think it, I think it, I think it, it agrees a lot with what with Frank just said. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, that's a great great point. That's a great point. Okay, let me do this because I, I want to get out of here and I want to be great. Uh, understand time. Let's let me just end with this thought. Okay. Churches like us and probably people like most of us in this room that want to take the Bible seriously, um, I think that's a wonderful thing, but we're prone to being neatniks about stuff. And so all of this desire for thinking about these things deliberately should not produce in us any sort of arrogance, but it should produce in us a kind of humility and long-suffering with people. I used to believe some wacky things while I since I've been a Christian. Wacky. I think maybe I still believe some wacky things. And so I think it just let all this produce in us a humility. You know what I mean? Churches that take theology seriously can be just like cranky places to be. Oh gosh, there's no worse place to be than like a just an arrogant church. You know what I mean? (laughs) And where you walk into that church and instantly you know that you don't know all the answers and you're not carrying an ESV study Bible and you don't have Spurgeon's things and you don't have all this kind of stuff. I mean, come on, who cares? There's people that, that don't know a whole lot about the Bible at all, but they're wonderfully fruitful children of God. Uh, you know, so let's just, let's, let's just be gracious and, and, and be long-suffering and, um, you know, let's, let's, yeah, you guys know what I'm saying. Let me pray. Father, thank you for these brothers and sisters and for... It's the, the word of God that you've given your people. It's sufficient. It is authoritative. It's true. It's, well, you've, you inspired Peter to write that you've given us everything we need for life and godliness. And you build your church on your word as it is uh, made alive in the hearts of your people by your spirit. So, to that end, Lord, make us more like Christ as a result of our understanding of these things. And I thank you for my, my brothers and sisters tonight. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We'll see you guys next.